All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, we'll finish up the book tonight. And next week, we'll pick up with Philemon. That's a real, that's another long book, one, one chapter, barely. But that's where we'll be next week as we march our way through the scriptures. Let's pray before we get started. Lord, we thank you for your word. The opportunity to spend time studying it, theology aside, we want to grow. We want your spirit to be our teacher and guide. We want to know um, what it is you like, uh, what you don't like, what your timeless word would say to us tonight. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts. We've all come in with different situations and seasons that we're going through, and we pray that you'd minister to each one of us as, as only you can. We pray that you'd bring peace to us in Jesus' name. Amen. God's word always brings peace to me. Um, got up here a little foggy. I couldn't even remember what I was going to say to Toby when he walked in the door. I had something to say to Toby. So you got to pray those things through sometimes for God to give you clarity. And uh, that's what his word does. It, the more time I spend away from God's word, in between reading moments, you know, or quiet time moments, I get spiritually foggy. And uh, these are timeless And the only reason I bring that up is as I was sitting there worshiping and thinking about how most churches say that God's word is the final authority for them on all doctrine and all theology, yet many times our actions don't necessarily reflect that it is. And we definitely want it to be. And so as we come to God's word, it's very important that we prepare our hearts like you'd prepare the soil for seed to let it get into our hearts, to be prepared, to not be so hard-hearted and that it bounces, you know? And so that's, that's my prayer tonight, is God's word would settle in our hearts, because we're going to touch on some things here as we finish up Paul's letter to Titus, as he encourages him to continue with getting the church set up um, in Crete, what he needs to do, what he needs to watch for. He's going to hit on some things that are, um, frankly, missed a lot of times in, in, our, in, our, in our walk with the Lord. So that's why we march through the scriptures, to let God teach us everything, not just the parts and the highlights. So verse one, as he ended last week with, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you, Titus. Remind them to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now remember, Crete had some special problems. They were an interesting group of folks. Anywhere you travel in the world, for the most part, people don't know the United States to be, they don't know us to be a quiet bunch. Whenever we go to France or England or whatever, we're usually the loudest table in the restaurant kind of thing. Well, that's just because that's how we are. Now, I'm not saying we're Cretans. But I am saying that we, uh, we hold different values. It's more important to have fun and to fellowship across the table than it is to necessarily be respectful of those around us. It's, we're having fun. We're getting into this, you know. We're on vacation. Well, the Cretans were very much loud, uh, obnoxious in all their mannerisms. They were lazy, we were told. They were liars, we were told. There was a lot of character flaws in this culture. So as Titus sets up this church, he says, remind them to have humility. Make sure they have humility. Make sure that they're ready to obey the authorities and the rulers that are over them. To not always be mouthing off, you know. To not always be fighting and and. And uh, pushing back all the time. You know, you're making it hard on everybody here. I, I see that happening more and more in our country. And, and we'll talk about obeying authority here in a minute and getting it in a really good perspective so we understand um, both hands, not just one side. 
But we see pushback. We see the people running into stores all over the place. Not all over the place, some specific cities. Stealing everything they can get their hands on. Every time there's some kind of confrontation with uh, an authority, there's always this pushback, uh, whether that's a teacher in the classroom or whether that's uh, a, 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 a mall cop just trying to tone things down or whatever it is. We see a lot of a lot of anger and a lot of rage and a lot of you, you can't tell me kind of thing. Well, that was the situation in Crete. And most of the Gentiles, of course, have never heard of Judaism, for one thing. Or if they had, they were always over there because the Jews always kept to themselves. So this Messiah that's for all mankind coming out of Judaism is completely foreign to them. So when we read Corinthians or when you read this letter to Titus to the Cretans, they're learning how to be people for the first time. They've never had any background, no upbringing in the church, so to speak, or with some morals or values. They're absolutely being blindsided by this is what your God is happy with and this is what he's not happy with. So it's a tough role. You're starting way, way back, you know. For the most part, when I stand up here, most people have been to church. They kind of know what to do. We get our coffee, we go to the bathroom, we get ourselves settled, we get our Bibles. Sometimes people don't know to bring their Bibles. That's okay, we've got a bunch of Bibles back there. You can keep them if you want them. But you know the drill kind of thing. We know how to do a movie theater. You gotta go, but you know, there's things. No idea. Cretans have no idea. The Corinthians, no idea. What I, as far as they were concerned, the only worship they'd ever seen, like in Corinth or whatever, were these temples. It was not like Christianity at all. Completely different. So you understand He's got a tough job. Remind them, continually tell them, you can't be a Cretan. <laughs> You've got to be a Christian now. It's different. Remind them to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Don't be lazy. Be ready to do, you know. To speak evil of no one. Guard your mouth. Guard your tongue. To be peaceable. We're trying to be peaceful people. We want to bring peace to the city of Crete. We don't want to be stirring things up. So here's some scriptures. Because when it says this, it's very important to understand now, we take this verse, or many people do, or these two verses, and say, there you go. You just be submissive to the authorities placed over you. Well, let me show you some names here that weren't necessarily, because there are limitations to that. When it comes to doing evil, we don't need to obey. If our leaders and our authority tell us to do evil, mm -mm. tell us to go against our God, mm -mm. we're called to civil disobedience. I'll give you some examples. When, when they were told by the Egyptians to throw the babies into the Nile, the Hebrew midwives drugged their feet getting there. They were not interested in obeying Pharaoh's command to throw babies in. No, not going to do that. Daniel. I need you to stop praying to your God. No, I'm going to keep praying to my God. Found himself in a lion's pit. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, bow down to this idol of Nebuchadnezzar. Mm, we love you, king, but we can't. We don't love you that much. We love our God far more. And they were thrown into the fire. Peter even, Peter and John, do not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. You tell me whether it's right, Peter says, whether that's to obey man or to obey God. We're going to obey God. Rahab, the harlot, going way back to Jericho, when the spies were there, you know, tell us where they are. I think they went that way. Now, she actually lied. She's in Jesus' lineage. It's one of his great, great, great grandmas, so I don't think I'd say anything. Obadiah. That's an interesting story all on its own. You have to look that up. He was, uh, well, look that up. Saul ordered Jonathan to be killed. Remember that? They're in battle. He says, I don't want anybody eating anything until every one of my enemies is vanquished. And everybody's like, that's a dumb command. But they did it. Well, Jonathan didn't hear the command, went ahead and dipped his spear into the end of some honey as he drove by, ate some honey, and went on. And they said, uh, Jonathan ate some honey. Saul was like, well, then kill him because that was my command. And all the people said, we're not killing Jonathan. That's evil. 
And finally, Christians in the Great Tribulation. Those who get saved during the Great Tribulation receive the mark, bow down in worship. We will not, they'll be martyred for their faith. So there are times for civil disobedience. When he calls us to come against our God, when they call us to do things that are evil, no. So keep that in perspective when what he's trying to say, what Paul is trying to tell Titus to tell the Cretans, look, you don't have to rob everybody. You don't have to be a liar. You don't have to be lazy. You don't have to push back when they tell you, hey, stay on the street, you know, stay off the street, walk on the sidewalk. These are things that you just need to normally, they're just rebellious people in general. And so he's bringing them into, well, he's trying to civilize them. They're called brute beasts. (laughs) I want you to be civilized. Quit walking like that. Quit acting like that. We can tone things down. Some things I wrote down from a commentator. Christians should resist a government that commands or compels evil and should work nonviolently within the laws of the land to change that government uh, if that that permits evil. One of the reasons we're doing these things with uh, Turning Point USA here at our church is to teach Christians, evangelical Christians, that no, you don't get to opt out. You're responsible for our government. We the people are in charge. And so when we sit back and don't do anything, it's your fault then. It's my fault if we sit back and say, I'm just above all this. You're not. You're responsible. And so we're going to teach that. Civil disobedience is permitted when the government laws or commands are in direct violation of God's laws and commands. If a Christian disobeys on evil government, an evil government, unless he can flee from the government, he should accept that government's punishment for his actions. Like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. I can't leave Babylon, but I'm not going to obey it. And if you want to throw me in the lion's den, then so be it. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Many were burned at the stake. Many were burned alive for their lack of adherence to the laws. Martyrdom is a part of Christianity, whether that's every day or whether that's a one-time big deal, you know. Christians are certainly permitted to work to install new government leaders within the laws that have been established. That's why it's important. Now, I bring this up because during one of the elections where someone had a hard time, I think it was John MacArthur actually told his congregation, within 72 hours of the election, do not vote. He's got one of the largest followings in the United States as an evangelical pastor and told his group, his crew, don't vote. Because he couldn't figure out who to vote for, he told them not to vote. That's ridiculous. It's absolutely wrong. And he was wrong for it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, here's what we can do along with being subject to the rulers and authorities to obey I exhort you, he, t- he told Timothy, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable li- life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. We need to pray. But not just pray, but also in our country, since we choose our government, we need to choose wisely and choose. <laughs> We don't get to sit back. We don't have that luxury. It's our responsibility. Some people had a tough time with the options, the choices that we had. I can't, I can't thoroughly um, endorse any of the candidates because I'm concerned with this moral failing or that moral failing. I understand that. I mean, I understand the dilemma. But your inaction almost assuredly solidifies a bad choice. I want you to read uh, for that, for those that have those moral convictions or difficulties in those situations, you need to read Judges, and especially, uh, especially when it comes to Samson. As he was the judge chosen by God, he was hardly the moral success anybody had hoped for in the nation of Israel. And yet he was the one chosen by God to bring about the change, to bring about the difference, to go ahead and be used in God's hand, although it was done for pride, and although it was done probably the wrong way. Well, it was. (laughs) He did it for his own benefit. And yet still, the Philistines were defeated, and the nation of Israel was saved. 
So keep that in mind as we think these things through. We have an election coming up in 2024. We need to be prepared and get our minds right on what it is we want for our country. So there's that. Verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. Now, he brings this up because he's trying to show one thing. First of all, don't forget where you came from, believer. And I don't know if you remember your born-again moment. Hopefully you do. If you haven't had that born-again moment, you must have that born-again moment to be saved. It's part of it. But there was a moment where I didn't hear everybody before that moment, but at that moment, my eyes were open, my ears were open, and my life was absolutely changed and transformed. And I lived a new life after that. Not perfect, but a life of gratitude towards my Savior Jesus Christ and understanding what he did for me. And I was able to look back then and see all the times that God had tried to get a hold of me. Whereas before I was completely blinded to their efforts and to their heart. I didn't see him before, but after I was born again, I'm like, oh my goodness, that teacher in third grade Sunday school. Wow. I remember her vividly now, but I didn't think of her until then. These things have to happen. I have to remember these things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, which is the first scripture I ever memorized, but I still have to read it. <laughs> Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And always remember that, J.D. Always remember that. I have not attained, as Paul says, he hasn't attained. I am, I'm not worried about losing my salvation, but I am sure not confident that I have overcome my flesh in full victory. I, I know it's still alive. I know it's still there. I know that it wants to get a hold of me. I will not let it rule over me, but it is a battle. And I don't ever stand there and say, well, I can stand. Why can't you? No. And so Paul tells Titus, don't forget where you were, Titus, and don't, don't forget where you've come from and what God has done for you. The second thing he wants us to do is to remember that they can be saved. Don't forget where you came from and that you could fall, but remember that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, you, got, you were saved. You were blind, but then you saw. You were deaf, but now you hear. These things, just it just happened. That can happen for them, and that's the frustrating part with dealing with Cretans or anybody else in the human species. When are they going to hear? I don't know. I don't know when your kids are going to get saved. I don't know when your parents are going to get saved. I don't know when any of them are going to actually get it. Nobody could, def could figure that out for me either. I'm sure many of the people that I could remember trying to minister to me slapped their forehead multiple times as they tried to deal with me. I understand that. But thank God, and I mean that, that they kept knocking on the door and that they kept trying. It's in Acts chapter 10, verses 40 through 45. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, this is Peter speaking to a group, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to judge, uh, to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the... Now he's trying to explain to this group. This is the reason I chose this cross-reference. He's explaining to the group who Jesus is. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And that's the end of the quote, but that's not the end of his message. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the words. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came to, uh, to, with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. God literally interrupts his preaching to let his Holy Spirit fall and save a bunch of people. You don't know when it's going to happen. It wasn't at the end. It wasn't at the altar call. Peter was gearing up for the big moment, right? Right? I do that. 
There's going to be the time where at the end of this service, you'll get a chance to receive Jesus. Greg Laurie told us to do this every time. Tell people you're going to give them an opportunity to receive Christ so they can be prepared and be thinking about it. Let them know what's coming. Don't surprise them at the end. So, and then you see Peter just doing this in the middle of his sermon. All of a sudden, God says, that's enough, Peter. And their eyes are open and their ears are open. Guys, the folks in Crete, at any moment, Titus, they can be saved. They may be a rough bunch. They may be difficult to minister to. They may not be hearing you. You may be so frustrated with them. But they can get saved, just like you got saved. And they will get saved, because that's why you're there. He's encouraging them. Be encouraged tonight. Don't give up on those people. If they're still breathing, if their heart's still pumping, don't give up on those people. I don't know when it hits or why it hits when it hits, but it and I won't say it will, it may hit. Not everybody gets saved, I understand that. But don't ever stop knocking on that door. Don't ever get so frustrated that you clam up and say, I've had enough of that. And if you do, let me give you some grace and some mercy here. If you do and have written off some people, God will certainly bring other people into their life that will follow up where you left off. I don't, I don't, (laughs) I wouldn't encourage that in your life. But he will be faithful and will make sure that they get it, the gospel, until until their last breath. Okay. I want to be used. Timothy, don't forget, for we ourselves, and he's not just calling Titus this, but we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived. We were those people. Here's what it does for you as a believer. As someone who understands where people are and continues to minister, it says this, gratitude for how God has changed us when you remember where you came from. Humility, as we see that it was his work that changed us, there's a humbleness that comes upon us. We didn't get it. He gave it, and our eyes were opened. Kindness, it teaches us to be kind. It's the loving kindness of of Christ that leads us to repentance. And finally, faith that God can change those who are still in that place. Do you believe that he can reach everybody and anybody? No matter how hard-hearted or how pig-headed, I don't know what the words are that we use out here, but you've got words. You've got labels. Can he reach them? Can he save? Does he have a strong hand? Can he break through? He got Paul, Saul, who was killing Christians and trying to snuff out the church. I did some pretty drastic things to get a hold, but he doesn't stop. We talk about the hounds of hell. There's hounds of heaven too. He doesn't stop. He'll keep on. Pray for them, of course. That praying softens the soil. It tills it up. And your praying for them may oftentimes bring hardship into their lives. It isn't that you're praying a curse upon them, but if their life is going so well that they have no need of the gospel and their sin hasn't rested upon their shoulders and the responsibility of it yet, sometimes your prayer, oh God, do whatever it takes to get them saved. Oh wow, I didn't expect that, you know. I didn't expect them to go that far, but he's stirring up the soil of their hearts so that they can receive that seed. I knew a lot of guys when we got deployed, they got saved. Imagine, you know, death is facing you. We didn't have to think about it. When you're in your 20s, who thinks about death? Yeah, I got till I'm 80, maybe. But then you find yourself in a place you never thought you'd be before, and you're like, oh, there's a big blessing there. It, it didn't seem like a blessing at the time to face mortality, but it was because you received Christ, you were prepared. You got yourself prepared. Verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is one of those doctrines I'm going to step on toes. The regeneration thing. 
Unfortunately, when we hear regeneration, it's been thought of as water baptism. Baptismal regeneration. And that's not what he's talking about here. And here's what I, I'm not just saying this. If you never got taught baptismal regeneration and you just read this, what does it say? Because this is the verse they use to justify it. It says, the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about water. Your salvation cannot be, cannot have anything to do with anything physical. It can't. It can't have to do with bread and wine. It can't have to do with how much water was used, if any. It can't have to do with anything physical. It has to be a spiritual transformation that takes place. Let me give you the scriptures to back up this, because this is what the Bible teaches. It's the Holy Spirit that does the regenerating. It's the Holy Spirit that does the renewing. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. He's not talking about water. The water he's talking about there is the word. The word of God is going to wash you. Like water washes the filth off of your flesh, the word of God washes the filth off of your spirit. 1 Corinthians 1.17 Paul says to the Corinthians, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Baptism is not a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in order to be saved, you must believe the gospel. That's what salvation is. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. My last cross reference, but there are many more, but for tonight's teaching. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 there is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Parenthetical statement right after that, in case you misunderstood what baptism meant. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. It's the washing of the Spirit that takes place, not the filth off the flesh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Paul says this to Titus, it's a very important doctrine for all of us to understand. Baptism is our first act of obedience after salvation, from salvation, in gratitude. I don't want to preach against water baptism. We should absolutely be baptized, but it is not for salvation. The thief on the cross is our perfect example of that. May have never gone to church. We don't know his background. Never got baptized, that's for sure. Today you will be with me in paradise because you believed on me. It has to be spiritual. A person in a coma in a hospital has to have an encounter or be able to have an encounter with the God in his mind, in his heart, without any external things at all, and get saved. It has to happen that way. Because if it's for one, it's for all. The washing of regeneration that every person needs is by the Holy Spirit. We have to have that. Is God's word the final authority in our lives? Or will the traditions of men cause us to reject God's word and what he says about all these things? We have to be careful. Verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. I want you to do these good works. You're not saved by your good works. I wrote down a quote here from Briscoe. He's a theologian. I appreciate the way he says it. I say it. I don't say it as eloquently. The theology of Christianity is based on grace. That's our theology. That's how we get saved. It's on grace. The ethics of Christianity are based on gratitude. I get saved by grace, but I live a life of gratitude, which changes my character to match up with God. Does that make sense? He does a very good job teaching that. Cretans, you're saved. Now live a life of gratitude. And that gratitude towards God shows up as obedience to his word, keeping his commandments, letting him change you from the inside out to conform you into the image of his son, Jesus. Verse 9. 
But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject the divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Titus, don't waste your time. Do your best. Rebuke. But after the second time, eh. I'll give you some scriptures for that in a minute. I do want to hit this first part, that verse 9, avoiding foolish disputes. What are those? It is easier. Well, I got another quote (laughs) from Barclay. It is much easier to discuss theological questions than to be kind and considerate and helpful at home or efficient and diligent and honest at work. I'll read that again. It is much easier to discuss theological questions, letting that be what people notice about you as a Christian. Let's discuss these deep than it is to be kind and considerate and helpful. To To let the character of your heart reflect what Jesus has done in your life, not just your ability to regurgitate or to enunciate your thoughts and feelings about theology even, but is your character being changed? There's nothing wrong with both. <laughs> I like both. But don't let that be what defines you as a Christian, your deep thoughts in the theological questions and so on. You ought to be changed. In Second Peter Chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. I think we move into foolish disputes about genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law when we get bored with growth. We get bored with it. We become so maybe, maybe we plateau in our walk, of, which kind of has to say we've, we've attained. We move into deeper things. I, I just had a conversation with Sunday, somebody last Sunday. They said they've moved on from this, that, or the other thing, and now they're getting to the deep thoughts of Enoch and all. I'm like, and I know this person. I know this person very well. There's a lot of room for spiritual growth, and I don't mean to be mean. There is for all of us. But to say that you're done with that portion of your walk with the Lord, and now you're moving into these extra biblical things... That's someone who's gotten bored with growth or has been so frustrated with their lack of growth that they've just decided to take another road. It's dangerous. Peter gives us something that'll take us forever, a path that takes us forever to gain. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. So now that you're saved, add to it virtue. And once you've mastered the virtue, add to it knowledge. After knowledge, after you've mastered knowledge, get to your self-control. After self-control and you've mastered self-control, anybody there yet? I'm not there yet. Perseverance. That means it's going to take a a lifetime to master self-control, so you're going to need to persevere in that. After you get perseverance down, let's master godliness. After godliness, brotherly kindness and after brotherly kindness master love there's a lot of work to be done god's word is going to keep me busy till the day i die i'm saved i'm saved by grace but my character has a long way to go for if these things are yours and abound you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter says you're never going to reach the end. There's no graduation ceremony for this, at least not here. There is in heaven. As we're known and we know as we are known, that's exciting to get there and to have that. Now, the second part of this, verse 10, rejecting a divisive man. Um, Jesus even alluded to this when he says, I want you, to, when you, when you, when you as go out in pairs and you go to these cities and you preach the gospel and you preach the kingdom of, of God, that it's at hand and they reject it, just 
kick the dust off your feet and move on. We don't have time. The, the field is white with harvest. We need to harvest. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Okay, well, let me know when you are, and it's okay. Pray for them, for sure. Back in the day, and maybe they still do this in other parts of the world, when Christianity was at maybe its pinnacle, it's not, it's at its lowest point, but they were the most in charge as far as the world goes. They would go in to a village or whatever, and if you didn't convert, they'd kill you. It's one of the dark portions of history in church. Of course, God has never authorized us to do anything physically to anybody who rejects the gospel. We're not called to that. That's, that's literally what it means to judge somebody. You pass sentence and execution. You can't do that. We're not allowed to that. Well, the only thing we do have authorization to do is to reject the divisive man, to reject the person. And I'll give you scriptures for this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 through 6 gives us a great example. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? There's no better word to use, unfortunately. It's got a bad connotation, but shunning. We don't shun but there comes a point where, look, if you're going to be unteachable and you're going to reject the gospel and you're going to reject the word of God over and over again, like he told the Corinthians, you can't let that person continue to come into the church and willfully sin against God over and over again and show approval. It's not okay. You're glorying in this. is not okay. You're not noble. You're not being loving at all. That's a horrible thing to do. To accept someone's sin and to not call them on it. That's. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It's going to move its way through the entire congregation. Well, that's okay and that's okay. Or through the whole denomination in some cases. Clark said, Labor to convince him of his error, but if he will not receive instruction, if he has shut his heart against conviction... Then burn him alive? No. Even if demonstrably a heretic in any one sense of that word, and a disturber of the peace of the church, God gives no man any other authority over him but to shun him. Do him no harm in body, soul, character, or substance. Hold no communion with him, but leave him to God. That's the idea. Turn him over to the Lord for God to do the work he needs to do in them. But we're not authorized in any way to do them physical harm, which is why Paul writes this. Reject that. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, gives us what church discipline looks like, or church, well, discipline, that's what it is. Jesus says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, one-on-one. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. If they repent, wonderful. That's wonderful. But if you will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So if you can find two or three people to come with you and agree with you that this person has sinned against you, which is a very important part of this, then you probably have good standing with the complaint. And now you've got two or three, and it's hard to argue against that. So that's the next step. Go one-on-one. Then find two or three to make sure you're not crazy or off and go. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That's, those are red words. Those are red words. You know, it bypasses these things. It's important to take these steps. Here's what I find happening more and more in the church. 15, 16, and 17 aren't being done, but there sure is a whisper campaign that goes on, and that's cowardly. That's cowardly. We need to have enough guts to walk up to someone and talk to them one-on-one with what they've done. And then the second thing is grab two or three, and it slowly but surely becomes more public as you go through the 
process there. It's not fun to talk about. It's not fun to teach. I'm not enjoying this. But it's necessary for a healthy body. It's necessary for the person. It's necessary for you. It gives opportunity to ask for forgiveness. It gives opportunity to forgive. It gives opportunity for change so that this root doesn't take in the church. It's important. Reject this person after the first and second admonition, he says. Verse 12. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. When you send these guys out, make sure they have everything they need, and he's talking financially, to make sure that they can minister, they can do whatever they're called to do. And this applies to any ministry. This applies to any missionary. Now, I only have a couple things to say about this. As donors to a ministry or whatever, you can't give too much. You can't go overboard. I mean, you can if you put yourself in harm's way, but we need to be generous when it comes to helping people all over the world. Okay, be generous in these things. On the other side, the recipients of those donations, no matter what the ministry, should never expect it, should never demand it, and should never feel like they're entitled to it. That's wrong. And I find that a lot. You, you have more than you need. Why aren't you, why aren't you giving more? You know, kind of thing. That's a horrible attitude to have from the person receiving the gift. When you go out and you're going to minister, you do it on God's authority, in God's time, with God's wallet. That's what you do. And you do what you can with what he gives you. It doesn't matter whether your dreams or your visions are bigger than your wallet are. It makes no difference. No one's obligated to fill that wallet at all. We're moving into a pretty serious recession, if not a depression, coming up. Understand that. You need to take care of your families. You know, Maybe some of you are feeling the crunch right this very second. You know, you're going through it right now. I was thinking about the, the auto labor union that's, that's trying to get uh, 38% or 35%. That's a big increase. I mean, usually they're fighting for 5 or 6 or 7 or 8%, but they're in their 30s, the high 30s, and there's a reason for that. First of all, it's been so long, but the, <laughs> inflation is that bad. In order for us to keep up, to be level even, we're looking at 32 to 38% increase in our pay just to continue to buy peanut butter kind of thing. And, and there's a little bit of, you know, we ask for 38, we hope to get 22. We understand that, but that's huge. That's huge. Times are hard, you know. So don't put yourself in harm's way for the sake of other ministries or any ministry for that matter. A ministry serves within God's allotment. That's what they do. If it shrinks, it shrinks. If it expands, it expands. But we're on God's dime. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We're not concerned about that at all. That, that doesn't even cross our mind as to whether you're supposed to give a Bible study or whether you're supposed to... Do you do what you do? Okay? So when he tells them this, make sure you're not stingy with them. True. But neither should Apollos think that he deserves more. That's important. Be careful about your heart there. Verse 14, and let our, and this is going to be a long one. I saved the last five minutes for this. And let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Be ready to meet urgent needs. I like that. You know? Well, he wants us to be fruitful. To get a good understanding of that, Genesis 1.11 Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. Many times throughout passages, throughout scripture, we are likened to a good tree or a bad tree. And our fruit should reflect what kind of tree we are, just like it was in Genesis 1.11. That tree is called an orange tree because it produces oranges. That apple tree produces apples because... It's an apple tree, and likewise. The fruit should reflect 
what kind of tree it is. Genesis 1.28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Part of the fruit is people reproducing. And, and, and although he is talking about physically and just having children, a Christian needs to bear Christian fruit. People ought to be able to come up to your tree and grab some Jesus off of you, is the idea. That needs to be there. And Christians that are walking appropriately with the Lord, they're reproducing. They're dropping their apples, they're dropping their seeds, and, and more Christians are popping up in their wake because of that. We reproduce. Genesis 9.1, So God blessed Noah and his sons, said the same thing to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Doesn't matter the circumstances. Doesn't matter how bad it is out there. As a Christian, I should be producing fruit. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, this is the fruit of a spirit-filled life, a saved life. It's love. It shows up in joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. That's the fruit that should be coming from my life. That's the evidence that I'm the tree that I say I am. Matthew 3, 8, just in case we didn't think Jesus said something about it. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. If you're truly repentant, there'll be fruit from it. And it'll be obvious to all that you've repented. Matthew 7, 15 through 20, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from the thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. I don't want to care what you say. I need to see the fruit. That's the evidence. You can't manufacture fruit. That has to come naturally. A tree doesn't, you know, I've done that before. You know, there comes the fruit. It just grows. It's not thinking about that. It's just grabbing sunlight and taking in carbon and making itself bigger and breathing out oxygen for everybody else to enjoy. It just does what it does. Oh, there's some fruit. You know, it's not for it. It's not for itself. It's for anybody walking by. It's to reproduce. Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else to make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Matthew 21, 19. And seeing a fig tree by the road, and I don't want to hear your theological explanation of this. It wasn't the time for fruit. I don't think it was the right time. I don't care what you've ever heard. Jesus says this, and I believe him. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. He expected fruit. I don't care what we expected or what we thought the seasons were. He expected it to produce fruit. I think that's important to say once in a while. Yes, Jesus loves you. Yes, he's your friend. But he expects fruit from that relationship with him. He expects it. Here's how you get it. Because it'd be mean for me to tell you to have fruit and then leave you hanging. And he doesn't do that. God's word's faithful. Matthew 15. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Are you being pruned? You feel pruned. It's only for your benefit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. I cannot bear fruit by myself. It is not about me on Thursday morning exerting more energy or effort. I need to abide in Jesus. I have to stay close and attached to that which is anchored, the root. And when I am doing that, when you're connected to Jesus, when you are tied in, grafted in, whatever words you want to use, it just naturally flows through you. You naturally produce fruit. It's the fruit of JD? No, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It just comes out the JD branch or your branch. And finally, we close with this. All who are with me greet you, Paul says to Titus. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Good stuff, Lord. Your word is straightening out our doctrine and encouraging us in our walk. It brings us peace when we know, when we work out our own salvation, when we're, when we're hearing your word and letting it change us from the inside out and our eyes are open, we can see clearer, we can hear better. We know what's expected of us. We know what can happen. We know how it's supposed to happen and what we're supposed to do. All that brings peace to us. We don't have to wonder. It's not a mystery. So God, help us to obey. It's still a choice. Help us to hear your word and to apply it and to do it, God, to abide in you. I pray that you bless these people. I pray that you bring comfort, comfort to their situations, to their seasons, to their, with their health, with their spiritual health, physical health, with their relationships, with their finances, all these things, God. I pray that you'd bless them, Lord. We want to represent you well in this world. We want to reproduce. We want other people to come to know you. We want to share the love of Christ, the gospel, with those around us. Help us to know it, to be ready in season and out of season, to give a reason for the hope that we have in you, that they might get saved, even if we think they're a lost cause, even if we're thinking about giving up, God. Help us to share and continue to be that light and salt in their life. For we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you.